Jesus. All right, Luke chapter number two. Luke chapter two. Now, for a lot of people in our world today, everything they know about Christianity, they learn from the Christmas story. You think about that. I didn't grow up in a religious home. My family didn't attend church. But I did know this. Every Christmas, we set up this little thing. We called the whole thing a manger and had a Mary and a Joseph. There's a little baby in the little feeding trough, and there were uh, uh, sheep and shepherds. And I knew this, that that's what Christmas was about. It was about the birth of Jesus Christ. And thank to, thankful uh, for the Gospel of Luke, because of the Gospel of Luke, um, most people are acquainted with the basic facts of the Christmas story. Uh, they know about the trip to Bethlehem. They know about the late night, early morning delivery of Mary's child. They all know that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, most of us have no clue what that is. But we know he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The whole world, virtually, is acquainted with the Christmas story. And even though the facts might be blurred in our modern celebration of Christmas, they're there. Even the atheist knows that to the Christian, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. That's why they fight so hard to get it out of our society and our culture. Because they know that what Christmas is really about is the birth of Jesus. And what we believe is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amen? Amen. So the Christmas story is crucial to our faith. But did it really happen? Did it really happen? It's an important question, and we're going to attempt to answer it a little bit this morning from Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the first seven verses. Just a, uh, We're just going to get Jesus born this morning, and then next week we'll get into all the celebration that takes place afterwards. Did Christmas happen? If you're able this morning, let's stand together for the reading of the scriptures. Aren't you thankful this morning for a Bible? Verse number one, I'll read aloud, ask you to follow along as I read. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, we bow our hearts to you, and uh, Lord, we ask you to do what we sung about just a little while ago, to make your home in our hearts. It's your desire for every person here. Father, that you would feel at home in our hearts, that you'd be able to do a good work in our lives. And I pray, to God, that we read a familiar story this morning. You'll help us to see it with fresh eyes. And perhaps because of what we hear, we'll make some room in our hearts that might not have been there when we arrived this morning. 
for your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for the filling of your spirit. I do desire that you'd empty me of me so that people can hear from you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you agree that the Christmas story has to be one of the greatest stories in the world? Amen? Amen. Yeah, it has, it has captured the hearts of men and women for 2,000 years. It has inspired music, cards, painting, pageants for centuries. But did it happen? I mean, did Christmas really happen? Or is this just, you know, a nice, heartwarming, um, Hallmark movie kind of story? Did Christmas happen? It's a fair question. History has many examples of myths and legends that make for good stories. They teach some good moral principles, but they never happened. The characters, the events in those stories were created to teach, maybe to inspire, but not to be believed. So could the Christmas story be one of them? Did Christmas happen? Uh, well, one of the strongest evidences for the reality of the Christmas story is this brief account that Luke gives of the birth of Jesus. It just kind of dispels the notion that it is made up. I mean, there are no facts here embellished by Luke that just make you wonder, could that really happen like that? Because everything in this story just rings true to life. I mean, it is set in the harsh realities of life in this world. I mean, come on, does it get any more real than taxes? Poverty? Heartless people? I mean, fallen humanity? Flawed human beings. I mean, you read this story and you realize that one of the factors that makes it ring true is it sounds true. We can imagine all these things taking place exactly as they did. It's the simplicity behind the Christmas story that makes it so believable. And I believe, just to settle all doubt, Christmas happened. And it happened just like Luke has recorded it here. And Luke wants to convince us of that fact. And he emphasizes here in just these seven verses three settings. Three settings in which the birth of Jesus took place. And it's each of these settings that makes the story believable. And so we begin in verse number one. And we find out that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So number one, there's a political setting to the Christmas story. A political setting to the Christmas story. Uh, Luke calls attention to the historical and political setting in which we have a man named Caesar Augustus, and he has the ability to order the world as he sees it to be taxed. Now, uh, if you'll remember, you went back in chapter number one in, in the uh, second message that we preached from this uh, book, that we were told it was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. And we said at that time that every Jewish reader would understand that statement, and none of them would think fondly of that fact. Nobody would say, oh yeah, when Herod was king. They would all say, oh yeah, when Herod was king. Because of the kind of individual that Herod was. Number one, he was a fake Jew, and he was a fake king. Uh, he had no right to uh, uh, hold the title that he bore. Uh, but in spite of that, he was a man to be reckoned with. 
Uh, we just made mention uh, at the previous message that Herod was somebody to be feared. He was a monstrous, murderous human being. A man like him never deserved to be king of Judea, and he certainly shouldn't have ever been the king of any person. And so that was the political setting, the days of Herod the king. Well, we learned that it also took place in the days of Caesar Augustus, a name that is still highly regarded in the, in the, in the minds of men today. We read that the, the events of the Christmas story, I mean, they really began to snowball together because Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the Roman Empire, in the minds of, of people by that time, he ruled the world. Anything that was outside of the, the, the uh, empire of Rome just wasn't worth having. And so he was, he was the, uh, really considered to be the greatest man in the world. And he made a decree. You understand that what Caesar said, people did. Caesar Augustus made this decree that set in motion the events of the Christmas story. Now, I just want to pause here and uh, put a little biblical perspective on that. History and the Bible together. But all the great empires of history are frequently associated with one figure. One man of godlike proportions. So if you go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 11, you actually have the first man who attempted to take and bring the world together under one government, and by the way, one religion. His name was Nimrod. The place was Babel. It was the very first time when a man sought to control the world and impose his religion on all people. One world government, one world religion. And then we go through our Bible and you come to those days in which there was the empire of Babylon. And when you say Babylon, one name comes to mind. Who is it? Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar. And just like Nimrod before him, uh, by the way, a kingdom called Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar attempted to bring all the world under one government, his government. And if you remember, we have a story in our Bible about some friends of Daniel that were part of his great effort to force all the world to worship the image that he had erected. One world government, one world religion. Babylon was followed by Greece. You say Greece, everybody thinks Alexander the Great. You get to Rome, and the first person people think of is Caesar Augustus. He is the individual who held that godlike status in the Roman Empire, the Roman history. Uh, he's considered to be the father of the Roman Empire. He was the first individual to hold the title emperor, and not just Caesar, but emperor. And he is considered to be the greatest emperor that ever ruled over the empire. Now, uh, this fellow, Caesar Augustus, he's actually born with the name Octavius. So if you're about to have a boy and you're searching around for a unique name, that's one for you. Octavius. Now, he was actually a, a nephew of Julius Caesar. He is uh, remembered for famously defeating the armies of Anthony and Cleopatra. And when he had finished that task, he went back to Rome, and whatever powers he had, he surrendered them to the Roman Senate. And the Roman Senate turned around and conferred all that power back on him and more, and they gave him the title Caesar Augustus. 
Now, the, the title, and that's what Augustus is, that's a title. What it means is holy one, revered one. That title had never been conferred on anyone but a god in Rome. This is the first time that it was conferred upon a man, Caesar Augustus. And in timely fashion, Augustus became the first of the Caesars to actually be worshipped as a god. One world government, one world religion, and that religion focused on the person of Caesar Augustus. There's an inscription in the British Museum of History. It was written while Augustus was still living. It describes the man and his reign as the Romans viewed him. He was called the son of God, Zeus, his father. He was called in this inscription the savior of the common folk. He is said to have been a blessing to all people, bringing peace and prosperity to the world. Men were encouraged in this inscription. Men were encouraged to give him their praise and make their sacrifices to him and sing their hymns to him. Caesar Augustus, the first Roman Empire, the first to be looked upon as a god, the first that men were encouraged to worship, which, by the way, he's dead and Jesus is alive. We're still worshiping Jesus. Nobody worships Caesar. Now, I, I trust that you noted that the people of that day were claiming for Caesar Augustus what the Bible declares about Jesus Christ. And that's no coincidence. Now, Caesar Augustus embodied what the Bible calls the spirit of Antichrist. It's a spirit that runs throughout the scriptures. You go back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, and at that point, God had a plan of salvation that he began to set in motion. And over time, some very key factors of that plan were revealed to mankind. God's salvation plan is founded upon the birth of a child who would reverse the curse. He'd be a blessing to the whole earth. He would unite the world in worship of God, and he would rule the earth on God's behalf. I mean, that's God's entire salvation plan. A child who would be born, who would reverse the curse, rule the earth, unite the world in worship of God. So Nimrod, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander, and Caesar Augustus, they were all satanic counterfeits of God's plan. Satan has had this ambition for the generations of human history to raise up a man of godlike proportions to rule the earth, unite the world in one religion, by the way, which ultimately worships Satan. It's his plan. It's the spirit of Antichrist. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know there is one who will be called the Antichrist. He will be Satan's last great effort, that last man raised up, a man with godlike qualities in the eyes of this world who will seek to unite the world under his rule and cause all the world to bow its knee to his religion. 
Caesar Augustus was just one man in the line of men, a satanic counterfeit of the coming Jesus Christ. And yet you read here that even as Caesar Augustus flexed his political muscles, he made this decree that put thousands of people in motion throughout the civilized world, the hand of God was at work to accomplish his purposes. And that's the second setting we have here. There's a political setting. This took place in the days of Caesar Augustus, uh, rightly considered to be one of the most powerful men who ever ruled on planet Earth, but nothing like Jesus when he rules. Political setting, and then a prophetic setting. Verse number three says, All went to be taxed, every one into his own city, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed, with Mary, his spouse, wife, being great with child. So Caesar Augustus makes the decree. Not only is the world to be a, a census to be made, so everybody can be taxed, but everybody's to actually go to the hometown of his tribal group, whatever heritage that he claimed, and there he's going to be enrolled, and that's where the tax will be assessed. And so Joseph, being a descendant of King David, is forced to make the trip to Bethlehem. Mary, his wife, is, is, is carrying child, great with child, and he thinks it better to take her with him when he goes. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Luke wants us to see that the decree of Augustus simply served the purpose of God. It, it was the means by which a prophecy was fulfilled. About 700 years before Augustus made his decree, the prophet Micah announced that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The prophecy goes like this, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. He said, this is where the Messiah will be born. This is where the true king of the Jews will come from, Bethlehem. And he'll be unlike any other child ever born because his beginning will not begin with his birth. He's from old. He's from everlasting. He is, in fact, God come to live among us. Emmanuel. So when the wise men wanted to know where the true king of Israel was to be born, the scribes turned to Micah 5.2 and said, Bethlehem. In his ministry, when some of his enemies wanted to discredit the ministry of Jesus, here's what they asked. Shall Christ come out of Galilee? He was raised in Nazareth. Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David? And out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was, the word of God established that when the Savior was born, when the Messiah came, he would come out of Bethlehem. The prophecy said he must be born in Bethlehem. Well, if Joseph understood this, he wasn't in any big hurry about getting where he's supposed to belong. I mean, the, the whole story gives you the sense that 
He was content to stay in Nazareth. They probably had all their preparations set there. That's where the nursery was. It was all painted. The crib was ready to go. You know what I mean? They'd already had the baby showers and all that kind of stuff. So God had to act to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Because prophecy had to be fulfilled. God used the authority. I love this. God used the authority of the most powerful man on earth to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so Jesus could be born where the word of God declared he must be born. Never underestimate the power of God. Don't let it surprise you if you see some very ungodly men do things that actually advance the cause and purpose of God. You know why? Because the heart of a king is in the hand of God. And turn it whithersoever he wants. I love it. Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world. And God said, watch this. Moved him to make the decree. To not only put the whole world in motion. But two people who need to move. Mary and Joseph. You know, one purpose of Luke, and we've mentioned this from the very beginning, is to give you confidence in the Bible. Luke wants you to know when you pick up the Bible and you read it, you can believe its prophecies. You can trust its promises. You can take God's word at face values. If God says this is the way it will be, you mark it down. This is the way it's going to be. If God says that, that this is his plan, you can be sure of this. His plan will come to pass. When God makes a promise, says, if you will trust me to, uh, in this way, I will bless you in this way, you can take it to the bank. If you'll trust God in the way he said to, you can count on him to do what he promised to do. Amen. You can have confidence in the word of God. If there's anything you take home this morning, remember this. God will move heaven and earth to keep one promise and prophecy of his word he's not going to let you down or fail to keep his word to you there's a political setting there's a prophetic setting and then there's this very personal setting the actual birth of jesus condensed to just two verses six and seven facts are just basic simple the time came. It was less than ideal because there was no room for them in an inn. They could not find lodging for this young couple anywhere in Bethlehem except in a cattle stall, a place where the animals were kept. The pains began. Mary and Joseph knew the time had come. So Jesus was born, wrapped in strips of cloth, laid in a manger. Now, I have to believe in my heart of hearts that Joseph would have wanted better for Mary. I cried for 30 minutes yesterday trying to put all these thoughts together, just thinking about Mary and Joseph. Joseph holding her hand, going through those contractions, knowing a baby's going to be born, and the best that he could do for his wife is a cattle stall. 
You read that and what I believe is it communicates two crucial, important gospel truths to us. The first is that God's salvation is a work of God's grace. God's salvation is a work of God's grace. Because I read this, and I read, if I was God, knowing, okay, how many of you believe that God knows everything before it happens? Absolutely. Okay. So God knew that Mary and Joseph would arrive in Bethlehem. Here's this couple, a woman great with child. They'd go to the inn, and the inn, innkeepers, I'm sorry, no room. People on the street, we read in our Bible, you have a couple of different occasions where people are outdoors and, and the people of the city know that's not a good place to be. Won't you come in our house and uh, we'll put you up, we'll take care of you. Nobody offered lodging to Mary and Joseph. God knew that in advance. Now, if it's me, okay, you're going to treat my kids that way, I'm not sending them. Isn't that true? I read this and I realize it's a miracle that Jesus was born at all. It is nothing less than the grace of God. Nothing in this story says that the world deserved for Jesus to be born. We have Augustus strutting around like he was a god and plenty of people willing to worship him as if he was one. That still happens today, by the way. Not, not naming any names, but I'm just saying it happens. There wasn't enough common decency, common decency in Bethlehem for someone to open their home to a pregnant mother expecting her first child. Jesus had to be born in a stable. It was the grace of God that Jesus was born at all. And it was the grace of God that Jesus was born in a manner that identified him with the vast majority of the people that he came to save. You need to erase from your minds all the images on all the Christmas cards you've already gotten and those you're going to get. A stable is a dirty place. The animals that night did not look like they'd been freshly washed and shampooed for the county fair. They had come in from their travels, sweaty and, and dirty and put in their stalls. One of them had to be moved out maybe. Hasty preparations made. A corner swept. Some fresh straw found and put down so Mary would have at least a little padding to lay on. It's not at all like the nice, sterile, pristine pictures that we have. It was childbirth. There was no doctor in attendance. No midwife stood by to help. It was just Mary and Joseph. As the contra uh, contractions came and went, again, I just visualized Joseph holding Mary's hands, wiping the sweat from her brow, did his best to comfort her against the pain and hold back the tears that he just couldn't bring himself to cry in front of his wife. Is this really the best that I could do for her? Why did God choose this entrance into the world for his son? It's part of the story that makes it ring true. This is just real humanity. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. 
How many people do you know who were? Jesus was born into poverty because that's where a majority of people on planet Earth begin and end their lives. Jesus Christ in grace came and identified himself with the people he came to save. One author describes it like this. He says it was clearly a leap down. As if the Son of God rose from his splendor, stood poised at the rim of the universe, and dove headlong, speeding through the stars to Earth's galaxy, where he made his bed with the animals. That was grace. The grace of God in salvation. And it was met with absolute indifference. Verse 7 says she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloth, which, by the way, that was what was customary in that time, not different for him than it would have been for most children because there was no room for them in the inn. He was laid in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And Christmas came in spite of the indifference of people. Now, no room, would you look up here? No room is a cold, heartless, bald-faced lie. I'm sure the innkeeper had a room. It could have been given to Mary. What about all those rooms occupied by guests with warm covers and full bellies and not expecting a child any minute? You know, the truth is, there is sin that works in the human heart and it resists making room for Jesus in our lives. That's what we're experiencing here. There's this thing called sin. It's in me, it's in you, it's in all mankind. It's what condemns us before God. It's what makes us liars and thieves and adulterers and all these other things that human beings can be. And it's that sin present in our heart that resists making room for Jesus in our lives. Things have not changed much in 2,000 years. You have overcrowded hearts. Okay, we call them pressing concerns. But there's no room for Jesus in my life because of them. We have over-busy schedules, which are really misplaced priorities. No room for Jesus in our schedules. We have overindulged budgets. No room for Jesus in our financial giving and, and investments of our life. I mean, there's something called sin at work in our hearts that resists making room for Jesus in our lives. It was at work in Bethlehem. Uh, it was at work in King Herod when Jesus was born. It was in the work of mankind throughout the ages. It's been at work in my life and your life. There's something about us that resists making room for Jesus in our lives. There could have been room for Jesus. Do any of us doubt that? Could not some decent individual step forward, say, give me just a minute to clear my stuff out. I'd be glad to have you and your wife take my room. Nobody. Nobody. It's one of the things that makes the Christmas story ring true because all of us have melt, um, dealt with that kind of heartless humanity, haven't we? Broke down on the side of the road. 
All they need is somebody to stop and lend a hand. If I'm fortunate, eventually a police car will come up. I love police officers. <laughs> I really do. Okay. Love them. Okay. They're good guys, good women. I love them. Most of the time, they're about the only people who stop and lend a hand if it's rush hour and everybody's trying to get home. Sorry. It's what makes this Christmas story ring true. I mean, we understand taxes, don't we? You understand that to the government, you're a taxpayer. We understand no room for the end. If you can't afford to pay, because to the business world, all you are is a consumer. And yet God sent his son in the world anyway, because to God, you are an eternal soul worth saving. To Jesus Christ, you're someone worth dying for. Did Christmas really happen? Try to tell me it didn't. It didn't. Of course, Christmas happened. What does it really matter anyway? I mean, do, do I really have to believe that Christmas happened to be a Christian? Well, you do because of why it happened. We didn't read it, but in verse number 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. See, if you can save yourself through your own self-effort, you know, just being a better person, trying a little harder, praying now and then, dropping a dollar bill in the offering plate, if you can save yourself through your own efforts, it makes no difference whether the Christmas story is true or not because you don't need the grace of Jesus. You can do it on your own. But if we are saved, as the Bible says, by grace through faith in Jesus, not by what we do, but because of what Jesus did, then it's essential that the great events of the gospel are true. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, his birth, his crucifixion, his atoning death, he died in payment of your sin, his resurrection from the dead. I mean, if you're going to call upon Jesus to save you, it better be real that Jesus is seated now at the right hand of the Father, ready and able to hear your cry and save you when you ask him to. See, if you save yourself, it doesn't matter if Christmas ever happened. All you need is a good story, something to inspire you to live a little better, to be more decent than the people in Bethlehem were. But if you can't save yourself, if it takes God's grace to save you, then Christmas must be true and it is